Get your gear ready. This is a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Welcome to a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, a podcast dedicated to guiding you along your innovation expedition. I'm Ben Tingey, co-founder of the Tingey family, an investor in the Atrium Health Employee 401k. Just trying to do my best Reed Hoffman Masters of Scale impression. But it doesn't sound as cool as his, maybe in 20 years. Uh, with me in the studio is Ann Summers Hogg, <laughs> Director of Innovation, and Elizabeth Benfield Watson, Manager of Innovation. Ann Summers and Elizabeth, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for having us, Ben. I love yeah. the way you kicked this off. Yeah, excited to be here. Awesome. Thank you both for being here. On our previous episode, Jay and I recapped our experiences attending the Design Sprint Bootcamp with Jake Knapp, hosted by the team at Wiley. Our team attends several conferences each year, and after those conferences, we typically share highlights and insights with each other. And over the past year, we've shared those insights more broadly with our podcast listeners. Elizabeth and Ann Summers attended last week's Transform 2018 conference hosted by the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Jay and I attended last year, and we recapped our experiences in Episode 4. Other conferences our team has attended and reviewed on other episodes include South by Southwest, Health 2.0, Innovation Learning Network, and more. As a quick reminder for our listeners, you can engage with us on Twitter using the hashtag InnovationEngine. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast or send us questions or suggestions about what topics we should address in future podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, please consider giving us a rating and a review on iTunes. Okay, and Summers and Elizabeth, let the nostalgia begin all the way back to last week. What were your first impressions of Minnesota and Rochester? Ooh, I think my first one was, wow, it's colder here. <laughs> but not as cold as I thought it was going to be. I was really prepared for like a a, a, a Charlotte December in in a Minnesota uh September but it 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 was like pleasant it was not bad it was fall it was mm-hmm. what most people probably expect in October unlike the 86 degrees that it is here today yeah right. the, the bracing Minnesota fall wonderful any other first impressions when you first arrived in Rochester so many farms yeah it was um the ride from, I guess it was a 90-minute ride from uh, Minneapolis, it it really was very beautiful. The The farms were very beautiful, and there were a lot of them. <laughs> so, But uh, um, it, it was really nice, and I think Rochester, I didn't really have any expectations about what it would be like. But it was very welcoming, and you can tell that, the, that Mayo has definitely invested in that town. Definitely the center of Rochester. It revolves around Mayo. It reminded me of a college town where things revolve around the university. And in Rochester, that's the Mayo Clinic. Yeah. Well, why do you think this conference is called Transform? I will start off by saying I think that um, the topics that they address were right on time for me and my work. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about that later, I think, as we get more into some of the specific you know, topics that were covered. I think that it's very future, um, future looking, but not necessarily in terms of technology. Uh, and so I think that's where it, it met my needs as a conference attendee a little better than some of the other more like tech futures. Like that's just not quite as 
aligned with what I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, I think that Mayo, you can tell, has invested quite a bit in their innovation and design build out. And I don't know the history of their innovation team, but they definitely have exponentially um, more teammates than uh, than I think we're used to working with. So that's a little envious. So it seems like they've done some um, some good work there. And one of the things that I, I really appreciated, and it seems like from last year, what you told me, Ben, about the experience and this year, I think that the speakers that they had were, they were very timely in terms of what the nation and what healthcare are going through. I've been to other conferences where things feel maybe one or two years stale, uh, but I think that for me, it was very timely um, and they didn't shy away from maybe some of the more controversial issues that are facing um, or that healthcare is facing today. Yeah. Yeah. And this might be their topic every year. Not sure. It's the first year I've ever been, but they opened talking about how all of the talks and all of the sessions were going to align around this concept of how do we move from incremental innovation to transformational information, transformational innovation, hence the name transform. So was that the topic last year too? Uh, sort of. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the idea of, yeah, incremental won't get it done. We, we need wholesale right. changes to the health system. How do we really make the transformational change? So working a lot in the arena of disruptive innovation, that was something that really spoke to me. And I was very excited that that was the topic at hand and the way that they weave together what could at first look seem to be disparate speakers or sessions was really quite artful and really created some dynamic panel discussions and also debates that I wouldn't have anticipated. Hmm. Very fun. So here's a, a question for you both. Do you think the Mayo Clinic is the right facilitator for this type of conference? What do you think? So without naming any other conferences, I will say that I've been to some to some other um, healthcare conferences put on by similar big name institutions. And from my perspective of the type of innovation that we do here, I think that Mayo understands um, what that that transformation is more of a, a mindset versus some of the other conferences I think have been much more focused on specific tools or metrics or things that are very much in today today's world are there and maybe it's not even in healthcare maybe there are other people that would be or other groups that would be really good at at capturing that transformative topic but it did not feel inauthentic to me what did you think Ann Summers yeah uh, I don't know that there's any one right group to lead this conference I think the Mayo Clinic is one right organization to lead it Clearly, their long history says something about their ability to transform over time in order to still have a sustainable business model. I was intrigued to learn in one of the breakout sessions we had on the second day that they aren't as far into value-based care as I would have perhaps anticipated, thinking that they're the ones leading transformational innovation and I think they are one right group. As Elizabeth said, they've made a huge investment in their CFI, their Center for Innovation. And clearly it is a component that they are very passionate about and that they don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. 
So they aren't the only group or only organization that could have put on this event, but they're one that could have, and they did a great job and obviously have for years in the past or people wouldn't keep going. Yeah, there's certainly the name brand component of Mayo Clinic that makes them a compelling convener of uh, thought leaders and things like that. But I think, yeah, like you said, the fee-for-service system has has done, they've done well in that type of arrangement, uh, financial arrangement, financial structure, and perhaps some of the compelling reasons to move faster towards population health is not something they see uh, as, as deeply in Rochester as, as maybe a larger urban metropolitan area with uh, greater diversity of, of needs, but it's uh, their star power, I think, is is uh, compelling enough. Definitely. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's get into the conference. Let's recap day one. So what were the sessions? What were some of the speakers that really spoke to you? I guess they, they all spoke to you about what resonated. Where did you find connections? One thing that resonated with me right off the bat was the opener. So the host for the event was not from healthcare. He was uh, previously on NPR in Minneapolis, I believe. And he, one of the first things he talked about was that to transform, we must first listen. And our listeners may recall that this was mentioned in prior episodes where Jay talked about improv and we had guests on to talk about, you know, that's the number one rule of improv is you have to listen. I thought in all the presentations I've heard about transformational innovation, listening has never been really held out there as the number one. And perhaps it's been said in different ways, like talk to your customers or listen to your customers. But I thought that was a really awesome way to to start day one. So the Let's see, it was the first session was meeting people where they are. And again, that's something that you you hear all the time, but they had a panel discussion from folks who are actually doing it. And for me, this was probably honestly the highlight of the whole conference. I tweeted out that um, Dr. Lena Wynn is my new public health hero. She was just so inspirational and motivational. Um, she is transferring from, or not transferring, she got a new job, but she was talking about the work that she did as the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore, um, and she's moving into a new role uh, to lead Planned Parenthood. So it's a pretty high-profile work that she is doing, uh, but she gave some very clear examples of some of the work that they've done that we might file under population health or uh, social innovation. Uh, one example she gave was about how they realized that the, the children – weren't always getting the eye care that they needed. So they partnered with Warby Parker to do free uh, glasses for all the kids in schools that needed them, which is just, it makes so much sense. Like if you can't see the board, of course you're going to be more disruptive. Like you don't even know what you're supposed to be doing. So just that idea of starting, like it's a big problem. Poverty is a big problem. Education is a big problem, but where can you start? Um, And so she just, she really like created a, a spark, I think for the whole conference. She was a rock star. She was an excellent person to have as one of the the kickoff speakers. And something Elizabeth just said made me think of one of her quotes. And she said that the currency of inequality is years of life and the opposite of poverty is health. And that really Hmm. stuck with me, not just throughout the rest of the day, but was then a lens that I took into the remaining speakers. And this concept of starting with 
as Elizabeth said, the, the first session was meeting people where they are. Reminded me of a podcast that I was actually listening to on the flight out to Minnesota, which was A Healthy Dose. And they had interviewed leaders at Walmart talking about Walmart's next moves into healthcare. And I'll say that after listening to that podcast and then hearing something I heard about Walmart on day two, which we'll get to in a little bit. I'm now much more worried about Walmart than I was before. <laughs> hmm, something to look into. So the both of you were tweeting mm, continuously while you were at the conference. <laughs> I was wondering if there was a, a battle or a competition going on to see who could. But they had a very public health uh, feel about them. I don't know if that was more day one or day two, but you know, in summers, you're a public health background, Elizabeth, uh, as well. So it's, I'm sure both of you were uh, enjoying that component of it. But talk to us a little bit more about that public health component. Yeah, I was going to say that may have just been because of where the tweets were originating from. Uh, others probably had different big takeaways from the event, but day one was very strong public health. Mm-hmm. And I think really it kind of carried through the whole thing because mm-hmm. day two was a little bit more maybe technology focused. I don't know. Correct me if you disagree with that. But it was about technologies in the home and empowering people to monitor and take control of their own health and taking healthcare outside of traditional healthcare walls. So I think public health was a theme underlying the whole event, but it's also a theme underlying transformation of our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think for me, the, the se- session that I went to following that first large group session, the first breakout session I went to, uh, it was from, let's see, the Building Healthy Places Network. Just checking my notes really quick. This is a group that I, ha- I was aware of um, because of the work that we're doing around social innovation and place-based innovation here at Atrium. But um, that idea of health happens in a neighborhood, I was so excited to hear for other people who wanted to talk about that. It was almost, it was sort of like um, drinking from a fire hose for me. I wish that I could take uh, my whole social innovation team to hear what people are, people are doing around the country. Um, in the session, one of the things that I noted that I'm still um, interested in is why there are so many more initiatives that are happening in other parts of the country, like what's happening in the Southeast. It's not that we don't have a need. So what's missing? Um, And so that's something that I think, um, again, it's a catalyst for me to understand that as we move into work here, because we are serving a population that I would assume is similar to other big cities or other medium-sized cities. But for some reason, that type of work just hasn't made it to the Southeast yet. Yeah, one of the to build off of that, one of the other speakers on day one was David Erickson, who is the director of community development for the San Francisco Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about health and neighborhoods and the importance of building neighborhoods that people feel proud to live in. And when you said, you know, the Southeast, like what's we we should be pretty similar. And it's the disparity between urban density and rural sprawl mm-hmm. is, 
I think one of those things that gets us back to health and healthcare are local and what works there won't necessarily work here, but certainly many of the tools and the approaches and the mindsets that they really brought to how to solve the problem in California, San Francisco, Los Angeles. What were the other examples he gave? Boston, Chicago, yeah. Other really big cities. And I think the one thing that really stood out to me the most from his presentation was a quote that he said was that we have a scarcity of imagination, not a scarcity of money. Mm -hmm. And I think about from a macro perspective, all the articles that have come out over the past few years, many in HBR or other uh, similar publications, but about how we're actually awash in capital and we are in a state of capital superabundance in this country right now, but we are afraid to invest. And it's when David Erickson said this, it just a light bulb went off and mm-hmm. it was, yes, we do not have a scarcity of money. We have a scarcity of imagination mm-hmm. and we need to address that problem first. Yeah, he I I don't come from a economics background, so I learned a lot from what he had to say. And I really loved his enthusiasm around like, how can you improve communities using like the tools of finance? Like, I don't know. I, I just never really thought about it before. Um, so he was actually part of that um, breakout session that I went to. So I got to hear more from him. And it really it gave me so much to think about and we've been doing this social innovation work for, you know, more than a year now. And I learned about ways to finance projects that are really innovative. So I think it, it was just a reminder that you, it's not just about having creative ideas, but the way that you approach ideas can be radically different than you've ever done before. Yeah. Awesome. Any other breakout sessions from day one that were particularly uh, interesting to you? I went to one called Designing Your Next Competitor, and it was effectively teaching people how do you design what would disrupt you so that you can build it instead of having somebody else build it and then disrupt you. It was a mashup of lean startup, journey mapping, and value proposition canvas development, and was just another great tool in the toolbox for business model innovation and innovation as a whole. Sounds fun. Uh, and Ann Summers and I finished the day together in the uh, Mayo's Code breakout group. It was about grassroots innovation. So it was similar to our Catalyst program, except much bigger. So again, like they have just a lot more people resources to put into things. And um, but they use a similar model of you can't just sit in a classroom and teach someone how to do design or how to do innovation the people people are going to learn from actually doing and so uh, learning from their program was really interesting and um and summers and i both rushed to the front to ask so what do your project managers do and they have a position called an innovation coordinator Mm -hmm. that you know i think is unique to their system um as far as i've known but i thought it was really interesting that they their team was not full of millennials like some other innovation teams are i know ours is like a an even split at this point but they it seemed to they seem to really prize experience and that makes a lot of sense when you're doing corporate innovation is to have people who have worked in the system for decades some of these some of these folks and who can help um help guide the process beyond just making sure that you're meeting your target dates but also knowing who the players are and knowing 
what you need to do before you have the meeting. And I thought that was really, really interesting. I don't know how I can subdivide myself to make <laughs> to make my projects go as smoothly as I bet theirs do. But it really spoke to the importance of having having relationships as you're trying to do corporate innovation. Awesome. So like last year, this year there was an Intelligence Squared debate that was recorded live yes. for the group. Tell us about that. <laughs> it was interesting. And so the, the concept was what's going to save healthcare, Washington or retail? And I don't really like watching people argue, <laughs> but it, I mean, each side had a very substantiated perspective. And ultimately, and this probably says a lot about my conflict style, but I just thought, you guys, both of you are wrong. The answer <laughs> is you need to work together and collaborate and probably get some other people at the table to really mm -hmm. solve this. So neither one is yeah. right. But that was just my yeah. opinion. It was, it was interesting to see the different sides kind of duke it out. But I'll say the one thing that really stuck with me again was a quote from someone who was actually on the retail side. So he was for the motion that retail was going to save healthcare, not Washington. And what he said was, we need regulation at the speed of innovation, not innovation at the speed of regulation. And I thought that was spot on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have to say it, it was frustrating for me also. For me, the problem was the way that the question was worded. So I do have it here. I'll tell you exactly what it was and then we'll we'll address it. But retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. And so the retail group had to argue that it was basically retail alone was going to be the, the biggest driver of success for healthcare. The other group got to argue that it wasn't retail. So they got to be a little bit more collaborative in their suggested approaches. It's just the whole thing, it was it seemed to be kind of a an argument that nobody is really having. <laughs> and maybe that's just like no one in healthcare is really saying that it's all retail or all Washington. I've never heard that conversation happening. Like maybe there are groups of people who think, you know, Minute Clinic or Walmart are going to take over and there'll be no, no more hospitals. But that doesn't seem realistic to me. So I don't think this was our favorite session. Of the event. <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing that. We didn't yeah. say that. But I mean, I've never seen a podcast other than this one be recorded before. So that was interesting. And it, it's not that it wasn't well done. It just I, I felt like it was a sort of easy question. No, retail's not going to say it was just healthcare. the premise. The Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. That's OK. So day two. Tell us about what stood out to you in day two from those sessions. So the first uh, the opening session was, again, more about moving from incremental to transformational change. I thought, again, that, that first session was really um, inspirational. It was really motivating. Uh, we heard from, let's see, there were a few different. This one, I think there was supposed to be a speaker who didn't come, so it was a little bit shorter. Mm -hmm. This one, it was, I won't say it was a hodgepodge. I mean, they all fit well together, but they didn't all come from similar backgrounds. Um, there was a woman, um, Amy Shaw, who uh, told her story of having kind of a high-risk pregnancy, how spending time in the maternity waiting room, she had another name for it, but how as a designer, so I think she works in, in architecture for designing healthcare spaces, she was able to see some similarities to developing countries. And there was just, she just had so much 
really great insight about how we design for spaces. There's one um, point in particular she made where she talked about the furniture that we use in uh, behavioral health spaces and how sometimes it's the same furniture that's used in prisons. So this idea of if we're designing for the worst case scenario, um, if we're designing for safety at all costs and we're not even thinking about healing or resilience or, you know, what we're trying to do in our healthcare spaces, how does that impact people? And uh, I'm a firm believer that environment has a huge impact on everything. Uh, So it was really interesting hearing her story and her twins turned out great. So happy ending there. Yeah, she talked about the impact of design on behavior. And then she alluded to the fact that if we expect the worst of people and we design for the worst, that's what we'll get. And then talked about the furniture in prisons and connection to behavioral health spaces. Another thing that she said that really stood out to me was that spaces either hurt or they heal. They are never neutral. Hmm. Which I thought... Huh. That'll make you think. Because <laughs> it's, I mean, we talk about the importance of space and innovation and patient experience, but I don't think I'd ever thought a space can't be neutral. It's either net positive or net negative. <laughs> yeah. So one of her anecdotes she talked about, she was sort of kind of trapped in this in this waiting unit until she had her baby. Um, and so she had her husband bring her sewing machine in. And the idea wasn't, it wasn't that... Obviously, sewing wasn't going to impact like the health of her baby directly, but it was helping her to be happy and it was helping her to stay there versus like being so bored out of her mind that she just had to leave. It created a place that was healing and that was comforting for her. And so I think sometimes we too often are looking for those strictly clinical interventions when really we might be able to make people we might be able to make their behavior change if we consider how their environment is impacting them. And she, the speaker who either went right before or right after her was Kathleen Brandenburg from IA Collaborative and was also talking about the role of design and its impact on behavior. And IA Collaborative is a design consultancy. And she was really saying that in order to move from incremental innovation to transformational innovation we have to live the problem in order to design the solution and it made me think of the quote that we have on our office walls that you have to fall in love with the problem not the solution and she also touched on something that the next revolution in healthcare will really be behavioral Mm -hmm. and because design impacts behavior if we're going to have a behavioral revolution, then design just became so much more important than it was in our prior paradigm. Yeah. And how might we really design with a focus on the behaviors we want to create or the behaviors we want to change? Mm-hmm. And then the last thing from her talk that really stood out to me was, you know, we talk about human-centered design and we remember that patients are human, but we often forget that they're consumers. So Let's not forget that the human is also a consumer. So it doesn't just need to be human centered, but it needs to be desirable and it needs to create the desired Mm -hmm. impact of behavior change. And she had some great examples of, I think it was a a blood glucose monitor. Yeah, the diabetes solution. Yeah. Dexacon. I don't know. (laughs) But it was, it, 
it's not that we don't have the technology to do what people need to do. It's that the technology doesn't fit into people's lives. And so she showed, I don't know when they did that work, but then she showed that today there's lots of other groups that are trying to kind of keep up with that same consumer focused wearable because now people do have a choice. And if your choice is between something that is clumsy and doesn't really meet your lifestyle versus something that's sleek and nobody would even know what it was. It just looks like another wearable Fitbit, you know, keeping up with my fitness. Of course, they're going to choose something that's sportier. Um, and she, yeah, so I thought that was really good. And that's like when I when I say that the conference is headed in the direction that I think it's headed in, I think because of our work in the innovation engine and because a lot of what we do is more about like systems and processes and helping people achieve their health outside of our the walls. It just it made so much sense, like preaching to the choir in terms of behavior is the next step, because we can only get so much better in terms of how we actually care for people with the technology we have. But if we can get people healthier when they're at home or at work or in the car or, you know, at church, all of those things, then that's the key to keeping people healthy. Yep, the yeah. ultimate disruption. Mm -hmm. Any other experiences from day two you want to share? The last one I'll say is we got to see the head of health 2.0 present. And that was fascinating, especially since our colleague Lindsay Denault had just been at Health 2.0 the week before, I think. And listening to her present and hearing more about the disruptive primary care and on-demand care business models that you and I follow all the time, Ben, and I'm sure I was bugging you because in the middle of this presentation, I'm sending Ben all these Slack messages and it's like, oh my gosh, you won't believe what Heal's doing now and look how many home visits they're doing each year and look at Parsley Health. Not that we haven't already been doing that, but mm -hmm. she's already mentioned them five times in a 15-minute talk. Mm -hmm. And it's just the pace of change. So the rate of change of those startups and of those potential disruptors, as well as the amount of VC backing that they're getting is impeccable and should not be ignored. And tens just of millions to, of dollars, in some cases, hundreds, of millions hundreds of, of millions of dollars. Yes. And it's just we've been watching these for years and it's the slope is going up faster and it's just it's impeccable to watch and to have her present that was confirming of what we have seen and what we knew was coming. And so the the last session that I went to was about um, designing or redesigning the caregiver experience. Again, that's something that kind of hits close to home in terms of what I work on in my day job here with the innovation engine. I was happy to see that uh, most of the attendees were also confused <laughs> When we say caregiver, who are we really talking about? But the the session was interactive. It was engaging. It's it's always fun to see how other groups lead sort of ideation or design sessions because we do so much of that here. And I had to actually leave before it was over, but I had some really great ideas. I'm trying to even remember what they were, but they were great. My t my table picked them <laughs> to design. That's a that's a humble brag slash a not. That's not really true, but <laughs> but no, it was a humble false brag, a humble false lie. Um, but it it was really. I, I'm sad I didn't get to see the end of it, but we actually left early so that we could go on a, a mini field trip before we headed back. Yes, that's what I wanted to ask. Was other things that you got to do on your trip to Minnesota? Yeah, so Ann Summers and I went on a road trip back to Minneapolis. I The week before the conference, I had been doing some research for the social innovation work that we're doing uh, because our partner, the YMCA here in Charlotte, I knew that there were other branches around the country who were doing different things. So 
I kind of stumbled upon the Equity Innovation Center at the Twin Cities. Why uh, I sent just a, I was just emailing into the void, uh, just sent it through <laughs> their their website, but I actually got a really quick response from Henry Crosby, who's the the director there, and he was very generous with his time. Let us stop by um, to see some of the work that they're doing kind of in that social innovation space. We got a little bit lost getting there, but <laughs> it's in downtown Minneapolis. It's a a mall. Like it, it literally looks like a mall. Yeah, it was an old mall that uh-huh. they had transformed into a five-story YMCA that has a wellness center, the Equity Innovation Center, had healthy places to get food, had awesome office space. This place was awesome, and I wish we could have spent more time there. But there was one time we were walking around in a conference room, and I thought, this is the solution for all the (laughs) empty malls in the United States. We turn them into YMCAs that also have social equity innovation centers. It was (laughs) awesome. Yeah. Because I often wonder, what are they going to do with all the empty malls everywhere? And so, solution. Yeah. I mean, this was very beautiful. I, I don't know the whole background of the project, I think they they merged two branches to form this new branch, but they opened this year and it it was it was beautiful. The idea that they were investing in diversity and inclusion and equity education for the people who work for the Y in all of their Ys and opening it up to other community groups was really, really inspiring. And even just as you ride into downtown Minneapolis, it really is a very cosmopolitan. It's a very diverse group. Maybe that's because I'm used to driving through downtown Charlotte, uptown Charlotte, where it's somewhat homogenous, uh, depending on what time you're driving through. This was like all ages, different places around the world were represented. It was really, it was really cool. So you could see they might be maybe a year or two ahead of us in terms of, um, getting a program like that up and running, but it was really nice. It was a great visit. It definitely was. And the head of the YM, Elizabeth, correct me if this is wrong, but the head of the YMCA in Charlotte now, Todd Tibbetts, came from mm-hmm. this Y in Minneapolis. Yeah. And so you'll see lots of connections, I guess, mm-hmm. between the, the thoughts behind social innovation here and the equity focus there. I do think that visit really took the whole trip full circle. Though, if I think about the opening session of Mayo and we need to move from incremental to transformational innovation and then getting to walk through a space that someone clearly could have incrementally changed Mm -hmm. in order to make it a usable space. No, they truly did a transformation of this old mall into a space that is now definitely designed to heal, Mm -hmm. a space that is designed to promote healthy behaviors and really be a catalyst for that population health revolution. Mm -hmm. So I didn't think of this until just now, but I feel like that Mm -hmm. visit really kind of tied the whole experience together. Yeah, it was a it was a fun field trip and it, it was definitely it was taking health where people are. Because you didn't, you wouldn't have even known it was a Y from the outside. It just looked like a downtown, like urban Building. center. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was awesome. 
It was fun. But the best part was traveling with Elizabeth for two and a half years. Aw, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, Anne Summers, Elizabeth, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you both so much for sharing your learnings about the 2018 Mayo Clinic Transform Conference. Thanks for having us, Ben. This was fun. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Well, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate each and every one of you. This is Ben Tingey. Talk to you next time. talked about the noise thing before we started because I feel like I did the swallow thing uh, every time before I, I talked. I it one time. <sighs> sorry, Hyper, Jay. Hyper aware of all the yeah, sorry. snacking. Sorry, Jay. <laughs> <laughs>